This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, and welcome back to the Mental Work podcast for early career psychologists. Most people who are psychologists have completed an undergraduate major in psychology. They've either done the full bachelor degree or they've done a grad dip in psychology. And as a psychologist now, I'm looking back at my undergraduate psychology degree and I'm thinking, did it actually prepare me for becoming a psychologist? Because the undergrad psych degree is at least three years. For me, it took me four years. And for some other people, it can take them even longer. And it's a whole bunch of subjects that we go through and assessments. And then you actually do your psychologist training. And, and what happens with that? Are they actually tying and flowing onto each other? So in this episode, we'll be talking with my guest, who I'll introduce in a moment, we'll be talking about what, it, what on earth is the purpose of a bachelor degree in psychology? What skills do we need to enter the psychology workforce? Whether the bachelor degree helps us actually do that? And how, I guess, in knowing better the psychology undergrad degree, how can we best support ourselves to survive and thrive as provisional psychologists and I guess psychologists in the future? So here to join me, I'm very excited. I have Niraja Shankar. And she's a clinical psychology training combined with a PhD. And thank you, Naraja, for joining us. Thank you, Bronwyn, for having me. Um, so a little bit about me in terms of where I've come from. I did my undergraduate psychology degree. Gosh, now I started in 2014. Um, I actually did a double degree in psychology and finance and also did my honours in psychology. So it took me about five years to get through all of that. Um, and then I finished honours, worked for two years full-time in various industries, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, and then I started my Master's of Clinical Psychology, and I'm also now doing my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, so through my Master's, I've kind of had experiences in various areas in terms of psych. So, you know, I've been in the internal uni training clinics. I've been in outpatient settings. I've been in inpatient settings um, in hospitals. So, that's kind of been my placements for ClinPsych. Um, but I've also worked in the EAP industry while I was trained before I started training. So while I was on my two years between study um, and I've done a bunch of other things like Lifeline and working as an ABA therapist as well. So pretty long journey to bringing me to where I am today. Wow. I'm so glad to have you here with us because you completed your undergrad but later than me as well. So I finished my undergrad in 20, 2011 and then I did my honours in 2012 and then I started my PhD after that. So I'm really excited that you, so you started yours in 2014, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So my undergrad, I started in 2014, um, honours was in 2018. So I finished at the end of 2018 and then started up with my master's in 2021 last year. Okay. Let's start with your personal experience of the undergraduate degree then. Can you tell us how much you knew at the start about what it was going to entail and whether that met your expectations? To be honest, Bronwyn, I don't think I actually knew much about an undergraduate bachelor's degree before I got in. My mum is a counsellor, so I had a little bit of 
experience in the industry itself. Um, and I was always interested in psychology. So I, you know, thought let's apply, give it a go. And to be honest, I started first year, first semester, first lecture I ever went to for psychology. I'd just moved out of home and they basically said, if you don't get into honors, this degree is redundant. And that wow. freaked me out. <laughs> and so I picked up finance because I was like, what is this degree that's always going to get me a job? Um, so the fear prompted you to immediately have a plan B. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, not didn't know what I was expecting. I guess I was probably expecting a little bit more practical skills, but I don't think I really got any of that. And to be honest, first year undergrad was a real... I don't even know the word, but it was really hard to get through because they kind of try and introduce you to every aspect of psychology in one year. And it's kind of confusing and you don't really know what the purpose of it is. I started enjoying it a lot more from second year though. How come? Second year I started, I think the subject that really got me was social psychology because it Mm. was the first time that they'd really gotten into an area of psychology and spent a whole semester on it um and I loved that I was able to pick up my textbook and be like oh my god this happened to me five minutes ago and how you know relatable it was and that's I think really what got me yeah, I love social psychology too. It's It actually provides a framework, I guess, for understanding your everyday interactions, which was like, I guess, what motivates a lot of people to do psychology. They're curious about why people interact the way that they do and why they are the way that they are. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So second year, it got a lot more interesting to you. Yes, yeah. Mm. Second year was when, I think, second year, first semester was when I did social psychology. And then what did you think of the research type units? This is a common thing that I hear from people who do psychology and they're like, oh God, I hate statistics. So I think I'm a bit of an anomaly because I actually found the statistics side quite easy because of my finance degree. I think I came in and I was like, I get this, this is fine. Um, But having said that, you know, the type of research that you do in honours is so vastly different that I was definitely not ready for from my finance or my undergrad psych degree. So that was very different, something I really had to get used to. That really interests me. Yeah. So it's like the statistics actually in the undergrad came, it sounds like quite naturally to you from a finance background. And then, but even in the honors, you found that it was a large gap. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just the statistics side, but also actually doing your own research. I feel like we didn't writing an honours thesis was so different to even when they set the research essays in undergrad it was just so different to what you were actually doing and so getting my head around writing a 12,000 word piece of writing um, and doing the literature review collecting data or you know I did a secondary data analysis so crunching numbers for the stats for that that was all so much to get my head around it's a lot isn't it like you say I guess during the undergrad degree they might give you a question and say kind of write this specific essay in response to this question but then in honors you've got almost this five levels up of skills that you need to actually be competent in to be able to finish this thing absolutely yeah it was just it was a big jump for sure and I wasn't the only one I think in my cohort we had 45 people who did the honours. And that was the other thing, I think, the competitiveness of getting into honours in itself was something that was so terrifying, also a step up. You know, when you get to kind of third year, you're really actively thinking about getting into honours at that point. And even that was just something so much more to think about. So, yeah, I don't think I was alone in that in my cohort. 
No, I do think that's quite a normal experience. I do remember it being quite competitive when I was doing my undergrad, but I think it's even more competitive now. I hear that right from the get-go for undergraduate students that they're concerned about honours, whereas for me, I thought about it in my third year and I was lucky enough to have already gotten good grades. So (laughs) it was a luck thing rather than actually solid career planning. Yeah, mine was also not solid career planning. I think, like I said before, I freaked out and picked up finance. So for Mm. a long time in my degree, I was a bit confused. Even though I was very passionate about psychology, I never knew what avenue I was going to take. So it was after I did my internship uh, through my finance degree, I did an internship at a consulting firm. And it was after that that I was like, for sure, I know where my passions lie. And it didn't lie with finance? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Good realisation to make. It's Sometimes it's only through experience that we actually realize these things yeah yeah and I think also because I mean I didn't think the undergrad degree gave me many practical skills so I actually also didn't have a job in area until my third year until I had done that internship and so that's when it really solidified to me to be like okay yeah this is something I'm really interested in something that really works for me So let's talk about that because I'm going to put this definition to you, which is one that I found on the Curtin University website, and it actually says what a bachelor degree is supposed to do. So it says, and I quote, bachelor degrees prepare students to develop broad and coherent knowledge and skills in a discipline for professional work and further learning. And the honours component prepares students to develop advanced knowledge and skills for professional work, research and further learning. When you hear that statement and you reflect back on your undergrad psych experience, how true does that statement feel for you? Not at all true. Okay. <laughs> Completely honest. Yeah. And I say that, I guess, honours in terms of the research aspect, it did prepare me. Hmm. Um, and I think until I got into honours, I didn't actually think I was very interested in research because I don't think I'd really done it till then, done it in the you know, proper sense till I did honours. Um, so it was then that I actually decided that, yeah, I would want to go down and do my PhD one day. Um, but the undergrad, I don't think I took all that away from, even for further learning, doing my master's now. In terms of doing research, I would argue that universities, they focus a lot on preparing people for the research component. Is that something that you would agree with? Absolutely. And I think it also says a lot that after you finish your undergrad and your honours degree, um, the jobs that are most readily available to you are research assistant roles. Like there's not that many practical roles that will take you on with just an undergrad and honours. Um, so I think that itself says a lot in terms of what the degree is gearing you towards. Absolutely. Because what it says is that you're not actually able to go into these client facing roles. Like you don't actually have the skills and capabilities to do that. After I finished my undergrad, I volunteered in a lot of different things, uh, but it wasn't clinical roles. You just couldn't gain access to that. And because the undergrad psychology degree, it, it wasn't recognized, I guess, by employers, but for good reason, because we actually didn't learn those skills in that degree. Absolutely. And I think I mean, I think there are unis that do it a little bit better than others. Um, You know, when I started my master's degree, I remember we came in to our first kind of intro to clinical practice uh, lecture and they kind of asked us, they were like, okay, so who's heard of the 5P formulation before? Um, Which is a big part of what we do, you know, formulating clients' problems and what's going on for them as well. And I had never heard of it and there was a lot of us that had never heard of it, but there were a couple of us from 
different unis that had heard of it before and they had a little bit of experience in that. So I guess it does, does defer uni to uni, but I do remember, you know, I went to ANU, the others there who didn't know what the 5P formulations were, they went to UCID and UNSW from memory. So those unis didn't seem to touch on the practical skills as much. Ah, uh, interesting. I actually went to ANU for t- the first two years of my undergrad. So yeah, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to UWA. I looked up a few different psychology course units and I looked up University of Melbourne because they claim to be number one in psychology in Australia. So I thought, well, okay, I'll look up their course. And it's pretty much identical to what I did during my undergrad. So it has the standard kind of introductory units and then it has biological psychology, developmental psychology, research methods, and then it has a bunch of other things, personality, social psychology, uh, clinical disorders. You get kind of one unit where you look at DSM disorders. And that was pretty standard to what I did. But then I had a look at Curtin University's structure. And in their first year, they have these foundations for professional health practice. And I was like, holy crap, like, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I think I align with the courses that you just read out from University of Melbourne and I'm thinking UWA as well, which is where you went. I think ANU was very similar. We did have one um, at the time it was called abnormal psychology. I think they, yes. Yeah. I did abnormal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that was, yeah. The ones looking at the DSM disorders and case reports and stuff. And having said that, that was probably the um, subject I enjoyed the most um, reflecting back because they actually asked us to, you know, watch a movie or something where the main character has some sort of mental illness. Ah, uh, Cool. And write a case report based on that. And I just loved how practical it was uh, compared to all of the other subjects that I did do. But this is not the undergrad degree, but I do know a little bit about JCU's grad dip program. Oh, cool. Um, And they, yeah, because I tutor for them a little bit. And um, they've got some great courses like Principles of Counseling, which is all about micro skills. Um, And even they've got one about psychological disorders and interventions. So you actually talk about diagnoses, you know, provisional diagnoses. How does that work? How do you look at the DSM? that type of thing as well, which I was really impressed by. That is so cool. And I guess it comes back to our earlier point, perhaps it's in recognition that these skills have been lacking in the undergraduate degree. And this is what we're actually looking for. We're looking for work preparedness, which is what by the definition of a bachelor degree is supposed to do. And maybe, maybe they are responding to it. I would hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think there is a lot that needs to be changed in the way psychologists are trained. Um, yeah. So yeah, I really do hope so. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that then, because I'm interested to hear from your perspective because you're a first year clinical trainee student. Second year. Yeah. Second year. Oh, awesome. And I'm wondering from your perspective, I guess, as an early provisional psychologist, what skills you've noticed that you've needed as a psychologist and perhaps like what has been kind of deficient in the undergrad degree that actually didn't help with that. So maybe tell us what skills you thought you you think that you've had to really develop quite quickly. Yeah. So I think the formulation skills I had to develop quite quickly. I don't think that's something I've really done. Um, I have gotten a lot of outside experience to kind of compensate for Ah, interesting. lacking in a little bit. Um, So like I mentioned, I volunteered for lifeline and i think that they're doing their training getting that kind of training in micro skills and the 
actually talking to someone who is in crisis, um, the act of listening, that type of thing. That was that training, I think, was invaluable. I got so much out of that. And then I've also worked in the EAP industry in different roles. So I kind of worked in a more contact center role where I was working closely with psychologists and managing their diaries. I then progressed into an on-site program coordinator role where I worked with psychologists to develop workplace programs and initiatives that they could implement at different workplaces. And then I then went further and I went into an immediate response kind of role where I was clinician on call where people would, if they called in in crisis, needed to speak to someone immediately, then they would come through to me. Um, So I think through those experiences and through the mentoring I've gotten from supervisors in those roles, I was able to develop some of the skills around the more therapeutic one-on-one support kind of stuff. Mm. Um, But I think formulation was one I hadn't really gotten a lot of in my experience. And that was one I had to come up with very quickly. And assessment as well. Um, I think I was okay at doing a basic assessment, but assessments, you know, the thing that you learn very quickly is assessment goes throughout your therapeutic relationship with a person. And so just trying to pick up on information that's clinically relevant that comes up over and over again, um, that was a big thing as well. So if I can extract some of the skills, it sounds like you learned through Lifeline and similar volunteering. It really sounds like some of those micro counseling skills. Mm. Is that right? And then also being more comfortable with being with patients who are in crisis. Yes, And was there any kind of other like kind of skill that you think were extracted from those volunteer experiences? Well, I think the other thing generally, and this is, I'm kind of talking from feedback I've received from my supervisors at my placements is that I think a lot of people, because they don't have that much experience working with someone um, who might be in crisis or who might be going through a really difficult thing, there is a lot of anxiety around that. And I totally get that, but I have received a lot of feedback that I'm, I'm not as anxious when it comes to um, being in a one-on-one session or running a group program for group therapy. And I would probably attribute it to the fact that I've had experience working with people. So it, it doesn't make me as anxious. Like I know what to kind of expect when I go in. So that really helps me in that way. Such a good point because it is essential. And I reckon everybody can relate to that feeling of just being in the room with somebody and wanting to run away like in the first few times that you're actually with somebody. It does require, yeah, a level of being able to be comfortable in that situation, have your own back and know what you're doing as well, as well as be comfortable with the emotion that is being, uh, I guess, displayed in the room. Yeah, and I think on that point as well, being comfortable with sometimes saying things that may not sit that well or may not land well with the person because it's a, the industry we're in is a very human industry. You know, something you might say to one person may land really well and they may understand where you're coming from. Someone else might get really offended by it or may think you're completely off base. Um, and I think it really prepared me to not be shaken when someone goes, no, you're absolutely wrong. That's not how I feel to be like, okay, that's okay. Like, tell me, cause you know, as an early career psychologist hearing from a clients like 
you're wrong could be so nerve-wracking. Yeah, and I really hear what you're saying, like with the absence of these kind of experiences, because literally every day in my clinical practice, I have patients be like, that's not quite my experience. Let me tell you this way. And I'll be like, oh, great. Like, cool, cool, cool. We're doing a great job because they know that I want to get it right and that I'm interested in their experience. I'm really grateful that they actually have that capacity to tell me that I'm getting it wrong. And so I love it. I love receiving that sort of feedback. But with an earlier career psych, I could imagine that would be like, oh, like it's just incredibly painful. And I imagine if you don't have those kind of skills to be able to sit with that, then applying, you know, formulation and assessment skills on top of that, it would just feel like an avalanche. Oh, you have to, you don't realize how much you have to think about in a session, but there is so much to think about when it comes to a session with one person or with a group, whatever it is that you're doing, there is so much there. Yeah. And so like, I guess this is kind of maybe a difficult question for you to answer, but I do wonder whether if we imagine an alternative reality where you didn't actually get these experiences, how well do you think you would have been faring or maybe like your peers, like in being able to learn all of these skills at once? Um, Look, I know I would, I personally would have been much more anxious. I think the fact that I came in with some of those more therapeutic skills, like the micro counseling skills and that kind of thing, the comfort of being in a session with someone. Um, I think that really helped me because then I was able to focus on things where I felt like I was lacking, like formulation and that ongoing long-term assessment. Um, But I know there are colleagues of mine who getting their head around formulation has been really difficult because they've had to really come up from the start with everything, you know, learn the building rapport and the micro skills and also thinking about assessment and formulation. And I think if I hadn't had the experience that I had, I would have probably been in a very similar situation where taking everything on would have felt really overwhelming and something would have had to give. Because this is kind of the focus, one of the focuses of my podcast, which is saying that we have a lot of burnout in our industry where people can take time off work for like nine months a year just to recover from burnout. And if one of the things that perhaps is causing that overwhelming anxiety in early career psychs is this lack of preparedness from the undergrad degree, then surely like there must be something there that could be changed. Absolutely. And I think the other thing with the burnout, at least for me, as someone who's doing the master's track is the fact that you have to manage placements on top of coursework, on top of trying to live your life. And that is a lot to take on all at once. And I feel like if the undergrad degree took away that pressure a little bit by maybe giving us a little bit of practical experience. So we don't have to be overloaded with placements in our master's degree or something like that. I think it would be so much more manageable because I talk to everyone in master's right now and everyone who's gone through master's as well. And they're sort of like, yeah, that, you know, when you're going just before your final semester, that burnout is crazy because you've the first three semesters have been so big. That would be amazing. Like what you just said then is like actually having some practical components in the undergrad site degree, because what I do is I've, I've got the occupational therapy undergrad degree units up here where I've got on the Curtin University website. And I'm just going to read out a few of the units in their undergrad degree, which is introduction to occupational therapy. So that's first semester, second semester, concepts in occupational therapy practice and informed evidence-informed health practice. And then if we go to year two, we've got introduction to occupational therapy professional practice. And then we've got 
applied physical rehabilitation, which sounds more practical as well. Mm. And then in the third year, we've got foundations of clinical counseling and group work, fundamentals of management in allied health practice. Like this wow. is this is crazy stuff. And then the last semester is uh, leadership and community occupational therapy practice, which again, it sounds like it has practical components as well. So if they can do it, surely we can. Surely. And, you know, I've been in some of my placement environments where we've got social work students who are in their bachelors, but get to do six month placements for um, social work in these areas. So, you know, that would have been so helpful as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I got the social work undergrad degree up as well. And it sounds like they have so much uh, practical stuff in there as well, which is, is just astounding to me really. So second year of social work, social work counseling individuals. Yeah. sounds pretty good to me. I really like that idea about the undergrad psych degree, having those practical components, because something that strikes me is like, I hear a lot of people refer to Lifeline as like do Lifeline counseling. And it sounds amazing. If I had thought of it, if I had taken up the opportunity, I would have done it myself because it sounds like such a good thing. It almost sounds like an informal kind of bridging program for psychology students in Australia. Yeah, it does. And it's really interesting, actually, like when you interview because you have to go through an interview process for Lifeline and they actually kind of say, oh, okay, so you're a psych student. And it's like, yeah, I am. And it's really interesting because a lot of people, obviously there are a lot of people there who are really volunteering and want to get into the area, but there is also a lot of psych students there who do it for the training and do it for the experience of being able to work one-on-one with someone. And they've got like limited numbers as well at Lifeline, don't they? Yeah, they do. Mm. Um, and it is at the end of the day, a volunteer role. So it's not something that's accessible to everyone. You know, there is life constraints that would get in the way of volunteering sometimes. So it's not achievable for everyone. Absolutely. And my understanding with the Lifeline as well is that you also have to pay a few hundred dollars for a training component. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think when I did the training, I did the training in the beginning of 2018. And at that time it was $500. I don't know oh. what the price is now. I haven't looked into it, but yeah, that was the price at that time. Yeah. And you raised a really good point that I like, as well as volunteering your time, having that financial commitment to be able to purchase that training might be out of reach for a lot of people. And that's a real shame. I've talked about this on my podcast before, because we talk about how it unnecessarily constrains, I guess, how represent our representative psychologists are in our community. We need all people from all financial backgrounds and with all kinds of experiences. Absolutely. I always say, you know, when I talk about our degree and our study process, I always share that I just feel like to do a, um, the psychology degree or to be a psychologist, there has to be a level of privilege that you come yeah. with, which I really don't like because you do the undergrad and the honours, which takes you four years, maybe five years, even longer for some people if you're doing it part-time, you then don't really get many practical skills coming out of that. So you can't necessarily work in area, but you're expected, you know, at least for me as a master's student, masters that are thousands and thousands of dollars and are constructed in a way where you can't work full-time, you know, Last semester for me, I couldn't work at all because I had two placements going concurrently plus a full day of coursework. That's five days a week. So I wanted my weekends to relax and do my other study. Of course. You've got not being able to work during the degree as well. And so there is a lot that you put on someone to be able to go through this pathway and make it out to the end. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree that it does require a certain amount of privilege. And I guess the people we're missing out on is potentially full-time parents or people with disabilities that constrain their energy 
and their physical capabilities, um, people of a variety of experiences. So it's a, it's a real shame that I guess not only the undergrad degree doesn't give us that practical skills to be able to then enter the workforce after completing it in, in our desired areas. I mean, that would necessarily force people out in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, people who may be mature age students or people who want to change their career as well. You know, I've heard so many people who hear about the work that I do and they're like, oh, this is so interesting. Then they hear about the pathway I've taken to get here and they're like, oh, I'm a little bit too late for that. And it's like, you're never too late, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of prejudices against people who might be, say, uh, more than 10 years having done higher education. And yeah. Mm. So, Niracha, is there another aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet that you think we should? Well, I guess how we can best support ourselves and not drown when we get out of the undergraduate degree. I think that would be a really important thing to talk about as well. Yeah, definitely. I agree because um, I'll just share briefly my experience. So when I got out of the undergrad degree, I was uh, I was looking for a job kind of in a client-facing area and pretty much what I did, I wouldn't say harassment, maybe that's unfair to myself, um, but I did assertively email a youth work center maybe like four times over three months. And in the end, she was like, you keep on emailing us, we're going to interview you. And I was like, great. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to work at this youth center. I wanted to connect with youth. I thought it'd be really enjoyable. And I ended up getting the job there. And holy moly, I was not prepared. It was in a low socioeconomic area. And I had no idea. It was with a lot of um, Indigenous and other cultural backgrounded uh, young people as well. So as well as needing these skills in working with different populations from different low socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, I was completely overwhelmed and flooded. And I think I stayed there for like six months, which was really kind of them to allow me to stay there in a way. And so when we're talking about, I guess, what what we can do to help ourselves not drown as provisional sex, and also when we're trying to enter the workforce after our undergrad degree, yeah, I think it would be really good to, I guess, touch on some of those things. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would like to say, and this is probably an easier said than done kind of thing. That's all right. Dream big. <laughs> but I think I know that I put a lot of pressure on myself when I got out of the undergrad honors degree, because I was sort of like, um, I didn't get that elusive first class honors. I was just just a smidge away from first class honors. And that that's a lot of pressure because you, you get a lot of messaging that if you don't get into first class honors or if you, sorry, don't get a first class honors, you're not going to make it into masters. Yeah, And so that's a lot of pressure that they put on you. And I think that's another reason why I probably went out there and got all of this experience. And I think I did put a lot of pressure on myself to do as much as I could to compensate for not having the first class honors. Um, but the one thing I would really like to highlight is if you're applying for masters, yes, it's helpful to have the experience, but don't put too much pressure on yourself. Cause we have people in my cohort who have never done anything clinical and it was about the interview and how they interviewed and how they came across and that's what brought them there um so if it's not something that you're able to do or that's not available to you that's okay I think there's a lot of pressure that we do put on ourselves for that experience so if I could say one thing to my younger self I would probably say that like trust in the system trust in yourself don't put that much pressure on you yeah because what effect did putting that much pressure on you have Well, um, I was 
very burnt out. And I think I remember this was the second half of 2020. So we were still kind of COVID was still a thing. And I remember I was volunteering for Lifeline. I was, they'd asked me to be a student mentor as well. So to train new volunteers coming through. So I was doing that. Wow. Um, three nights a week. I was also tutoring at ANU by distance two nights a week. I was working my full-time job at the center. I was working as a research assistant while also applying for all of my masters. So I already feel like crying just hearing that list. I was exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that is absolutely such good advice because you're right in the interviews, I guess like the core skills that you need as kind of gaining entry to master's courses. I see them as one, I guess, a capacity for self-reflection and willingness to be open to new perspectives. Mm -hmm. And two, I guess, a capacity to be able to relate to people. So that is being able to build rapport. And kind of that's a thing that is also being seen through the interview. What would you say would be the things that you reckon the interviewers might be looking for if you don't actually have that clinical skill background? I think being yourself. Oh, um, I love that. You know, how authentically you're coming yeah. across uh, because the last thing you want is a psychologist who's not being themselves in a yeah. session because, you know, you're getting this person, whoever comes to speak to you, to pour out their lives and their hearts to you. And it can be a bit jarring if you, you're not yourself and not being yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's so much easier to take a no BS approach as well and just be your authentically self as a psychologist. I actually read a study the other day, which was talking about a relationship between psychologists and autistic uh, people. And they actually really go on the no BS approach, like quite well, like they, they're good at like BS detecting. And I work with a lot of autistic clients. So I was like, oh, it's probably good that I'm myself. Maybe this is why they're hanging around. Yeah. So I think absolutely be yourself. I think empathy is definitely something they're looking oh, yeah. for. Yeah. Um, and while well, you can probably learn empathy and develop it, I think if you're able to show that and you can develop empathy through a lot of things, you don't necessarily need to be doing a clinical role or something in the psych industry. Um, so just be able to show that you have that empathy and you're able to be there for people as well. And probably the biggest thing is show that you're passionate. Um, And for me, that was also like researching the uni, researching the different lecturers and researchers that were there and showing that I was really passionate about being there. Um, And I guess that wasn't really any of my experience. That was just you going out there and doing a bit of research before you applied. No, that makes a lot of sense because that demonstrates that you're interested as well. Yeah. No, that's so cool. And I wonder if there's anything else that you think that we can do to best support ourselves, I guess, having come from the undergraduate degree and then coming into a psychology-based role. Self-care. Mm. I think definitely know what works for you. It's it's definitely a journey, but also I think during your master's or the, well, the four plus two method, um, method isn't available anymore, but the five plus one as well. Um, I would say, don't be afraid to play around with what works for you for self-care. I think that's something I've done over my master's degree to really understand myself and what I need. Um, Cause seeing people and working with people can be really exhausting, especially if it's the first time you're doing it when it comes to placements and things. Um, so it's really important to have your outlet have ways to look after yourself. I know for me, it's going for a walk and just 
unplugging completely and just listening to the sounds that are around and not having to think about anything else. Um, I also was not much of a journaler before I came in, but just before I started masters, I actually really thought that would be a good thing for me to get into as a way, as an outlet, because, you know, we also have to maintain confidentiality of our clients. It's not like we can tell our deep, the deepest, darkest things we've heard from someone to anyone else. So being able to have a different outlet for that. So for me, journaling really helped and uh, building that practice and building that skill before I started master. So it was kind of there for me as I started masters was really helpful as well. So just kind of knowing yourself and what works for you um, and what works for you to unplug because you take on a lot sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. You take on a lot of new information as a new um, psychologist and you don't realize the the breadth and depth of human experience I feel sometimes when you come into face-to-face interactions with people. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing I would say from my personal experience is if you've got people you can reach out to who have gone through the pathway that you want to go through, please do it. Like I didn't feel like I had anyone that I could speak to. So I felt like when I was applying for masters, I was doing it all alone. I was doing it, you know, kind of blind, didn't really know what I was doing. Um, And so that's something I'm really passionate about now that if people are applying for masters or want to go down that pathway, to please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to speak with them, share my experience. And I think that can feel really validating as well. Um, so don't be afraid to reach out because that's something I didn't do. That is so awesome that you do that. And it's exactly where I want our profession to go as well. I do feel like it's quite isolating the lack of information that is between more experienced psychologists and early career psychologists. And so I think it's amazing to actually be able to carry that attitude and be like, hey, it doesn't have to be as hard for you as it was for me. Here's how I can help. Yeah. Um, And your lecturers can be a good source of that. Um, You know, if you I know I developed a really good relationship with my honors supervisor. She was a big mentor for me. So she was someone I could ask questions to and rely on. She didn't do clinical psych. So she didn't know much about this pathway. She was an organizational psychologist, but it was still good to have that relationship. So if you're able to, you know, form those relationships with your lecturers in undergrad as well, I think that's a big thing you can take away from undergrad. I completely agree. And just circling back to the self-care, I just wanted to add that your self-care might look non-standard to other people. So with with an earlier episode, I did the uh, the episode on burnout and I talked about how when I did hospital work that I would routinely go into an office, shut off the lights and then just put my head on the desk for like half an hour. And then that was my way of getting self-care in a busy hospital environment where you just hear noise all the time. And sometimes I would just not talk to people and then just go out and sit by myself on the lawn. And it's not bubble baths, but you've got to do like adaptable self-care to your circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, I'm in a hospital environment now and sometimes during lunch, I'm like, I would love to spend time with the staff, (laughs) but I don't have it in me. So I'll just go to a corner of the cafe and put on some modern family at the moment. (laughs) And just tune everyone out for a while. (laughs) Yes. I love that. It's like, stop. I am. I'm watching modern family. Please leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not nah, awesome. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I, I mean, just kind of circling back to what we've kind of come to is I feel like we both have this shared perspective that the undergrad psychology degree, it really doesn't prepare us for the practical sides of actually engaging in client facing work. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. I would also probably go as far as saying it doesn't really prepare us for research either, because it's probably a pretty big step up between undergrad and honors but the honours does prepare us for research a little bit more. 
I would agree with that as well because I was reflecting on that before this episode and I was like, oh, what if the psych degree did it, didn't it prepare me for writing and didn't I use that in my PhD? And then I was like, no, because I learned during my PhD that I didn't know how to write anything and then I spent years rewriting chapter after chapter. Uh, <laughs> so so I thought I knew how to write after my honours and then that was all torn away from me. Oh, gosh, I hope I yeah. don't go through the same thing. <laughs> I hope you don't either. But in saying that, I'm really grateful for that experience during my PhD because now I feel like I can actually write things. That's yeah, I guess that's a good skill I'll maybe develop out of this. <laughs> you might already have those well-formed skills, Naraja. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but I would agree with that perspective as well. We've come to, I guess, some ways that people can support themselves. And I guess like my final message to listeners would be like, guys, it's not you. You're not the problem here. There is some system stuff that is making it really hard for us to be able to enter the workforce. And it also privileges some people who actually have the time and resources to be able to commit to gaining skills. Um, in areas and it, it disadvantages other people. So the, what we can do is kind of work within the system to hope that the system changes, which by the sounds of some university degrees, it actually is incorporating more practical elements. It'd be nice if it could be comparable to OT or social work, um, but it sounds like it is getting there. But but guys, I'd say it's not it's not you if you're finding this hard and there's some, some practical ways to support yourself. Niraja, what would you like to leave listeners with? I would like to second your message. You're definitely not alone. And I think the degree we're doing, sometimes you can feel alone. Um, and also I think it's really easy to have imposter syndrome in our degree because, you know, we don't, it's not just handing in a report or doing a project and getting feedback on that and knowing that it's done and you've left it, you know, it's a very human industry. And so some days will be amazing and some days nothing will land and you'll sort of be like, what is going on? But again, that is so natural. And the one thing I've learned is even if you don't know things, people you're working with probably don't know that you don't know. So you're probably the only one that's thinking about that. So don't worry about it and um, reach out to people because it's been so validating connecting with other people who are in this place and knowing that you're not alone in the burnout and the difficult nature of what you're going through. Naraja, if listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch, where can they find you? I think LinkedIn would probably be the best place to reach out to me. Um, feel free to have a look at my experience. Um, send me a message if there's anything you wanted to chat about or needed any guidance or help with applying for masters or anything. I'm more than happy and love chatting to people. So send me a message. Awesome. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And thank you so much, Niraja, for coming on. I really appreciate your time and experience and insights into this quite complex topic, actually. I think we did pretty all right in covering it. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bronwyn. Yeah, I agree. I think we did. We covered quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for having me as well. This has been really great. No worries. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening and hope you take care, mental workers, and I'll catch you next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. My mission is to unpack the challenges faced by early career psychologists so they don't have to go through them alone. I need your help to get these episodes out there and there's a bunch of really cool free things you can do to help me. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get the show as soon as I put it out. Also, consider telling a friend and I would be so honoured if you'd share some of our episodes on social media. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.